Tonight, we will be beginning the book of Judges. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to the book of Judges. We're just rolling right through the historical books of the Old Testament, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And Judges is what comes up next. And in this order of historical books, Judges does proceed chronologically or follow chronologically the book of Joshua. So Joshua, we left off stepping into eternity. So that great person of the Lord Moses had stepped into eternity at the end of Deuteronomy. Now we've got Joshua stepping into eternity at the end of the book of Joshua. You had back-to-back great leaders for the nation of Israel, bringing them out of Egypt and their bondage as a nation through the wilderness wandering into the promised land and another generation's arising. And the book of Judges is one of those books that is a difficult book in some ways because it's brutally honest of the human experience. There's parts of Judges where you just go like, oh, this book is frustrating. But there's parts of our life where we go, this is frustrating. And there's parts of human history that you say is frustrating. Like I watch anything to do with Russia between 1900 and 1920, it's frustrating to watch the Russian Revolution, what happened to good people, just the rise of the Bolsheviks. And there's things that are frustrating in human history. And the book of Judges can be frustrating at face value. But even tonight, we'll see as we're in chapter two, when we get to chapter two, that like all of the human experience and all of the word of God, there's good things there for people who see good things. If we set our mind on good things and we set our mind on things above, there's never, well, it's like we're just singing the darkest night, the Lord lights it up. So even in the darkest time, it always comes back to personal faith, individual choices, self-determination, and what we choose to do with our life as unto the Lord in the midst of an environment that can be completely out of our control. So as we go through the book of Judges, we just want to remember that because we're going to get stuff that's like, oh my goodness, this is so frustrating, but we need to learn from it, and all scripture is profitable for us to grow and to be drawn to Jesus Christ and built up in our most holy faith as we were singing those songs tonight, a lot of songs about heaven tonight. Thank you, Scott. So we, as we come to the book of Judges, we have that timeline. We're at about 1400 B.C. It takes us to about 1000 B.C. because the book of Judges takes us to the time of the book of Ruth, and that brings us to the time of Saul, 1 Samuel, the beginning of the kings, Saul, then David, and all the subsequent kings, Solomon, the divided kingdom. And so this is an interesting period because we've gone from that great leadership of Moses and Joshua to now we're, we're, we've got this nation without a true king, no real governmental system other than God's word and that they're under the Lord and they're in the promised land. And this is going to play out for about three, three, four centuries, the events of the book of Judges. And these judges are different people who are led by the Lord to lead for the Lord at various times when people cried out for deliverance to the Lord and God gave them a deliverer. And even though the next generation would fall into sin and rebellion, God would continue to show mercy and have empathy on his people as they cried out to him. When we look at the book of Judges, we consider the template of the book of Judges. And we'll see as we go forward that the book is not necessarily chronological in its storyline. In fact, the latter part of the book is a summary of things that happened during that timeline. But what you do see in the template, in the layout of the book, is early on, it's just the deterioration of the nation. As they're on their own, their deterioration as a nation. And no one likes to study that and look at that, but it's here for us to look at and learn from. Then with the judges being raised up by the Lord, that'll begin next week in chapter 3, there is deliverance through judges. So starting with Othniel, and you get Gideon and Samson and Deborah, these different judges, and God would bring deliverance through them. So the good portion of the book from chapter 3 through chapter 16 is deliverance, and it can well be said that chapter 17 and 21 near the end are just depravity. They're very unpleasant chapters, and it's just a nation given over to depravity, So for us living in America in 2021, looking at planet Earth, it doesn't catch us off guard. We're not going to see things like, well, that's how could that ever happen? Because we're living in something like that. And so we we get it. So from deterioration to deliverance and depravity, that's our template in the book. And so tonight we really begin with the reality of the deterioration of the nation after the passing of Joshua. Most people attribute the book being 
penned by Samuel the prophet. Of course, the Holy Spirit speaking through holy men of God as he moved them. Samuel being that prophet, most likely the one who wrote it. And the book itself does mention this was the time before kings. So within the narrative where it's was written, the historical record put together, referencing the time of kings, which means the book was written after its timeline, reflecting back on the history, kind of like how Moses consolidated all of human history in the book of Genesis under his pen led by the Holy Spirit. So we pick it up in chapter 1, and we get some review from the book of Joshua in chapter 1 and 2 a little bit, but we begin to go forward as we see the deterioration of the nation of Israel as has all been entrusted to them, their inheritance, all the things that God did for them in the book of Joshua, we go forward. That's what we do. Verse 1, chapter 1. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I've delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites, And I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they fought Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him, and they caught him. And they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. This is the beginning of the book of Judges. In Joshua, if you recall, in the allotment of the land, remember Judah was in the south of modern Israel, and Judah went from the Dead Sea right across to the Mediterranean. They had a big chunk of land. In fact, if you recall, God said you have too much land. The land was actually too much for them, and God put Simeon, right in the middle of their land. So if you have that map in the back of your Bible that shows the allotment of the land for the 12 tribes of Israel, you'll see that Judah is the Dead Sea to the Mediterranean like that. And there in the middle is a circle, and that's Simeon. So it's kind of interesting to see right away when we studied all this just a few weeks ago in the allotment, here is Judah. They seek the Lord. The nation seeks the Lord. Like who? They had unfinished business. Remember, there's unfinished business. God's given them their inheritance And they've inherited some of it, but they need to completely drive out the Canaanites. That's obedience to the Lord is completely eradication or removal. Because we know that bad company corrupts good morals, not to be deceived, and that they will bring them down. The the people with their false gods, their evil gods, and their lifestyles and their standards would pollute God's people and bring them down. God's people is not going to elevate them, their neighbors. They're going to be brought down. And so they did receive their inheritances, all the 12 tribes, but they had to finish the job. And that's what we saw in the book of Joshua. And here they seek the Lord. Who's going to go, like who goes first to finish this job? And Judah and Simeon work together. So that's, that's kind of cool that they come together, like two are better than one. It's always good to have allies and advocates as opposed to enemies and adversaries. You can have those anytime. It's nice to have people that will stand with you and, as they say, go to battle with you. So this is kind of cool that these two tribes work together to establish and go after their inheritance. And we see right away there's victory. They had victory. And that victory was was against uh, Adonah Bezek. Right away in application we see that basic principle of the word of God. As a man or woman sows, so shall they reap, right? I mean, Galatians chapter 6 tells us, if you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you reap life. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. It's actually one of the first verses I ever memorized, even before I was saved. I knew that verse. It was a restraint against me. Because before I ever walked with the Lord, but I knew about the Lord, I understood how things connected. So I stole this bike, and then my favorite surfboard got stolen a week later. I'm like, hmm, you know, and, and you, you see how that works. It's like gravity. Gravity is a physical law of this universe, and what we do morally or immorally for or against other people, it always comes around. And again, we talk about world religions having a remnant, in some cases, of universal truths. <laughs> Even the Hindus know it's karma. And as they'd say in 
the Caribbean, it's bad juju or good juju. It's a universal spiritual law that is no one's exempt from. Now, we understand that Christ dying on the cross, the cross is an X factor and all that. But for believers in the New Testament, we are told, as you sow, you shall reap. And Jesus himself said, if you show mercy, you will obtain mercy. But without the Lord, we would just be imploding, like, on, like a black hole imploding on itself in our sin. Like Jesus said, he didn't come into the world to judge the world because the world's already judged. So Jesus sort of breaks that cycle of sowing and reaping because we can't break it. But then when we receive Christ, he breaks that cycle. And then through the Holy Spirit working in our life as believers in Christ, we can begin to enter into what he has and we can begin to fulfill his word properly and we can sow a good seed and we can reap a good seed morally within ourselves and our character toward other people and we can become more merciful and we reap mercy. Remember David in the Old Testament, King David, he showed mercy and it's amazing when you read the life of David how much mercy he found. Like, how did David do all this stuff and not just get completely hit by lightning? But he was very merciful. And as he showed mercy, it always came back to him that he found mercy. Even though God taught him lessons and chastened him, he found mercy. And this guy, Donabizek, this is very interesting because he would have worshipped pagan gods, Baal and Asterisk or whoever, whatever, that they worship in the land. But he refers to the one true God of the universe, God. <laughs> and I guess as in Ecclesiastes, God puts eternity in our hearts. And no matter how much a person says they're atheist or agnostic or whatever, they don't believe in God, you can, you can cover it up and you can be given over to a seared conscience and a hardened heart like Romans 1 tells us in the New Testament. But we still know we're going to go see the Lord. Like the famous liberal leader in France, Voltaire, said before he stepped into eternity, I now have to face the one who I've denied my entire life. Right on his deathbed. Right? So that's... Sam Kennison was a famous comedian in the 80s, was once a Baptist minister, and he renounced his faith and became a very famous comedian like with Rodney Dangerfield in that timeline. He's so vulgar and vulgar, and unfortunately he still has a lot of stuff out there on YouTube. He's just a vile man, and, and, and he was so depraved. But he, when he died, he died in a, a, like a scooter accident on his honeymoon. And the last thing he said before he said, before he said to the attorney was like, that, oh no, God, I'm not ready, not now. So he had renounced his faith, made millions mocking traditional family values, which is what he did. And then on his honeymoon, of all things, he has a scooter accident, and the day of the Lord came. So here's this guy who went out, conquered surrounding kings. And we think of kings like Queen Victoria, or Peter the Great, or Frederick the Great, or something like that. We need to think more like, gang leaders in the hood, like conquering hoods. Like you run the gangs in Fresno, you run the gangs in Bakersfield, and you, you cut their toes off and they work for you. We, we, we need to think more local on the kings. They're more like mayors, if you will. So if you could go through Orange County and you rule Orange County, and you're like this kind of person, and you just make everyone, you just, because of course without a thumb, you can't shoot a bow or arrow, you can't hold a sword. There's historical writings where Roman citizens who didn't want their children to be enlisted in the military would sometimes have their thumbs cut off to prevent them from being enlisted because it's like a, you can't really go to war for Rome if you can't hold a sword, right? You cut off the thumbs and the toes, what do you got? You got someone that's begging for food at the table. So this guy made a trophy of people he conquered and made them beg at his table. And then when it came on him, it's, this, by the way, this is what people are going to do when the books are open in Revelation chapter 20. Because in Revelation chapter 20, when the entire world, each individual stands before Christ and gives an account for must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, therefore knowing the terror of the Lord and persuade men to repent and trust in Jesus, says in Corinthians, that statement from Paul the Apostle by the Holy Spirit is fulfilled in Revelation 20, and the books are opened, and when people step into eternity, they're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the last thing they're going to say when they're cast into outer darkness. But they're going to agree with their sentence. They're going to agree that it's perfect, eternal justice. When the creator, the created stands before the creator and they're self-condemned for their unbelief, their pride, their arrogance, and their sins when the books are open, they're going to be just like Adonabizek, 
All the people who want to rule the world in every generation and do all the evil they do with the shuffling of the feet and the winking of the eye, they're just people cutting off thumbs and toes and you're going to step into eternity and their thumbs and toes are going to be cut off. For the wrath of God is revealed from God against all ungodly men who suppress the truth and ungodliness. And that's what they're going to get. So this guy got it in time. This is what he sowed. This is what he reaped in time, space, and matter. This is what every unbeliever, in a sense, gets when they stand before the Lord. They're going to get exactly retributed to them, perfect justice for what they did in their sins and their rebellions against God and against humanity. And when we say crimes against humanity, no one gets away with anything, and we understand that. Right away, this book teaches us sowing and reaping, not for Israel, but for an evil king, what he did. And I never cease to be surprised when I see people sow and reap. When you see someone do this, and they need to get away with it, and then like a boomerang, it comes right back, and it comes back on them. So this is why we want to sow bountifully, favorably. This is why we want to grow morally, personally. This is why we want to be gracious with other people and kind with other people and turn the other cheek and not rage against our enemies because in the end, it's what God wants us to do, but it's good for us. Life is better when you're under his mercy because you're showing mercy than when you're, you pick up the sword and you die by the sword. And who said that? Jesus. He who takes up the sword will perish by the sword. It's much better to show mercy and, and get mercy. There's an end for people like Adonabizik. And in the end, he got what he had coming, and it was perfect justice. And he brought it on himself. And there's no difference in God's universe working with humanity in the context here of what he's doing with what the planet chooses to do with him all around the planet right now. Today, 300,000 people are stepping into eternity, and they're facing perfect justice for how they live their lives when they stand before Jesus Christ in the next dimension. Verse 8. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it, and they struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains, in the south, and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba, and they killed Sheshai, Ahemon, and Talmai. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sefer. Then Caleb said, so now this is going back to the context of Caleb's lifetime and some of the stuff we read in Joshua. And I told you these early chapter have like a connection to Joshua. It's like interchangeable. So verse 12, we pick it up. Then Caleb, who said, whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Aksah as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenes, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter, Aksa, his wife. Now, as it happened when she came in, that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you wish? So she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you've given me the land in the south, give me also the springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. We have this story in Joshua, and we read this in Joshua. And yet again, here in the book of Judges, we're reminded that Joshua had made good decisions. He brought blessings on his life, and he brought blessings on his children's life. And he was a great man of faith, and his daughter married another great man of faith, Othniel, who's going to pop up again in a couple chapters. And the legacy of faith went from Caleb to his daughter and who she married and what they did. And in a generation of degeneration, which was the timeline of Othniel's generation, there's still a godly remnant doing good things and making good decisions. And we're reminded, too, that uh, she asked for more, and her father gave her more. And we have to think for just a moment, like we were singing earlier with Scott, that, we, that God can do more than he's ever done before. And we, we need to keep the concept, we need to frame things properly in understanding that even though we're in a difficult time, God's the same as he was. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. And we, we want to ask God for more. We have the prayer of Jabez up in the wall in the office here that, oh, Lord, that you would expand my, expand my boundaries. And we want to be expanding boundaries for the kingdom of God. When I'm looking at October, what God's going to do through the worship generation in my life, I, I want more, more of the kingdom, more of faithfulness, greater faith to do greater things. I want to sow more bountifully. I want to believe God for greater things. I want to reach more people. I want to make a difference, and so do you. That's why we're here. And sometimes I think there's a lot to be said that we need to keep seeking, keep knocking, and keep asking now more than ever to see God do great things 
That's how we want to live our life. And if he chooses not to, like I say, let it not be because we didn't believe him and didn't trust him and didn't ask for it. If God doesn't do great things in and through our life before we step into eternity, let it not be because we didn't believe he could or we didn't seek after it. It's because he just had a timeline for us that was kind of like the Bolshevik Revolution or the Book of Judges. But let it not be because we weren't willing to cooperate for greater things and take steps of faith for greater things with him. Then it's up to him. But we want to believe God for great things. We want to ask God for the upper springs and the lower springs. We could settle for this, but let's, let's, let's ask for more. Verse 16. Now the children of the Kenites, Moses' father-in-law, that, of course, takes us back to the books of Moses, uh, the, the, the Pentateuch, uh, the, the offsprings of Jethro, his father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephthoth and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Also, Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah. And they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. And then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent out men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all of his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called his name Luz, which is its name to this day. This is the conquering of the land, and that's what we're getting here. So we read that they had iron chariots in the valley, and they they couldn't they couldn't drive out the, the uh, they they couldn't they couldn't get them in the lowlands because of the chariots of iron, but it's not because the promises of God weren't with them to do it. They just didn't. We went through this in Joshua. They just didn't. Something in them kept God from that. They 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 let unbelief or distractions, carnality keep them from driving out chariots of iron. You know, you got to have a really sharp focus and a really strong walk if you're going to drive out chariots of iron in the lowlands. You know what I'm saying? We say this is big league ball. You're going to do an outreach in Anaheim Stadium, the big A, like Greg Laurie, have 30,000, 40,000 people there. You better, you better be serious about what you're doing because you're, you're running with iron chariots. This isn't, this isn't like, this isn't little league ministry stuff. This is big league ball. You're going to do this? It's like Franklin Graham setting up his tents in New York City when COVID began and being attacked by all the, all the, all the leftists and liberals. You, you, better, you better be ready for iron chariots. You better, you better have your head in the game. It's kind of like there's high school football and there's college football and there's the NFL. It gets bigger, faster, more violent at each level. But, you know, if you're called to have 40,000 people in Anaheim Stadium, then do it and go take on iron chariots. But so many people, when God has an upper call of God in Christ Jesus and new adventures and more challenging things, and there's a battle, like, man, this is going to be so gnarly, iron chariots. This is not an easy battle. This is much harder and much more sacrificial than I thought this type of ministry would be right. So you either walk away or you find another gear. You either clear out your closet and put things in order and get after it, or you just settle for less. Think how many people settle for less when they see iron chariots. I mean, that's just, people walk away. But we're all still alive, and we don't want to walk away from iron chariots. Because the key thing about the iron chariots is God already promised victory against those iron chariots. So not having victory against iron chariots is settling for less than what God has called us to do. But sometimes what God has called us to do, it's a beatdown. It is. So we just have to decide if we're going to go for it. Iron chariots or iron chariots? 
You know, we're like, whoa, they're huge iron chariots. Like, that's nothing. No, it is something. Iron chariots are something. You know, make no mistake. That's a real deal. Those are iron chariots. They are what they are. Like we say, that we're not overly optimistic. Like, oh, the glass is full. No, it's not. Those are iron chariots. You just, it is what it is. Reality is reality. Iron chariots are reality. The only question is, are we going to put Jesus over that reality and have victory in that reality or settle for less than what he has for us? They settled for less. Now, this guy also is very interesting to me. Uh, our buddy who um, betrays his city. This, this to me is interesting. Because first of all, he's a collaborator with the people that are conquering his community. And no one likes a collaborator, right? Like whenever he's just with World War II and you see the French collaborators and you see the Dutch collaborators with the Nazis, just like, ugh. You know, he's like, ugh. And the Russians, man, they could, man, Belarus, Ukraine, any, any of the Ukrainians and Belarusians, and they did anything collaborating favorably with the Nazis to save their skin in 39, or excuse me, 40, 41, 42. Once it was the red machine was going the other way, man, there was retribution and payback against the collaborators all the way from Belarus to Berlin, all the way from Berlin to Paris. Like, you can find the video clips of the women that were humiliated, their heads shaved and all that stuff in Paris who, who were involved with the Nazis and the men who helped them. There's something I don't like about a collaborator against, with evil against your own people. And people sell out their own people all the time. There's people selling out this country right now from within this country, and you don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that. They're collaborators with evil and our enemies. But that's not my business. That's theirs on the day of Christ Jesus. I'm not cutting off toes. They are. And I'm not going to give an account for what they're doing. They are. But I'm going to give an account for what I'm doing, and you too. So if we can get past, like, wow, but think about this. This guy's collaborating with good, not evil. His city's evil. They worship Baal and Ashtoreth. They do very evil things in his city. The people that are coming, God's given it to them. So to fight them is to be fighting God, but to submit to them and help them is to be submitting to God. So it's kind of goes at, we have to understand that context. Kind of like Rahab when she hid the spies in Jericho. Very similar. But check this out. You could miss this. So this guy works with the Israelites, spies, shows them how to take the city. Hey, here's how you get in the city. You go through the sewer or whatever. You're like, here's the back door. This is how you're going to take my city. And who knows if he was in power, he was nobody, somebody. Who knows if he had a, a bone to pick with the mayor of Huntington Beach or something. Like who, I mean, like, who knows his story? This guy lived in this city with his family, and he gave him up. But he gave him up to the people of God who were promised the city. So we have to give that context to it. But check this out. Ready? What does he do? He builds a city. The city he came from is destroyed. And then what does he do? He builds a city. To me, this is a positive, and I'll tell you why. When people almost die, people that really get it, people that almost die, like say you're in an avalanche as a snowboarder and you survived it, or you're in a major car wreck and you came out good and you survived it. When people have near-death experiences, Max Lucado in one of his books, the famous Christian writer, called it a little bit of hanging where you hung on the cross, but you didn't die on the cross. Like you almost went into eternity, but you didn't. And I have found there's something very interesting happens when people almost die and then don't, when they dodge a death bullet. They either totally turn on the Lord, they don't even care anymore. I've seen it. You probably have too. Or they're all in with the Lord. It's a second chance. You get a second chance on life. This guy, I don't know what he did before this day, but after this day, he had nothing. Everything he lost, everything he had was in the city. He lost. He lost. Like, if he had a home, that home is not yours anymore. But with a second chance, we're told by the Holy Spirit, after recognizing a situation and siding with God's people against his own evil people, he has his life. Satan said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he'll give to save his life. This guy's like, hey, I'll show you the way to the city. He saves his life. He saves his family's life. And then, instead of living off like government checks or something and, and you know, being under tribute or, or lifting stones and bringing water for the nation of Israel, what's he do? He goes and builds a city. He got a second chance on life and he made it count. That's what I'm saying. He could have been destroyed in that city because they were going to take it. But he aligned himself with God's will, and then he gets a second chance. 
and he builds a city. I don't know what he did in the previous city, if he was somebody or nobody, but when he got a second chance on life, he built the city. That's a good legacy with a second chance on life, which brings us to this thought. What are we going to do with our second chance on life? Or for many of us, for over 40, what are we going to do in the second half of our life? Or if we're changing careers, what are we going to do with a new career? I was at the bank today, and I was stunned. Our, our, our branch has closed during COVID, then reopened again and closed again. And we're, and we're doing the other branch of our bank. I go in there Monday, and the line's like 15 people deep. They've been really good about no lines. I'm like, oh, here we go, the Soviet Union again. And... Um, and if you know what I mean, you know what I mean. If you don't, don't worry about it. But I said, I'll just come back later. And then I went back today, and off hours, 15 people in line. I go, what in the world's going on? There's like two tellers. And I need me with a banker because we're transferring funds to the mission field. Okay? We're sowing bountifully. And there wasn't even a person to, to like greet me like, you need to meet with a banker. Like, you know, when you go to the bank, you're like, and they're not even there. I'm like, where is everybody? They used to have a person here, you know, making you wear a mask or something. Where, where is everybody? Like, what happened? And this lady gets done who's working with a, a private person, and she starts running out the door like, hey, 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 I, 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 need to, I need, can I make an appointment? Like, what do I do? She goes, well, I just came from another branch, and uh, yeah, we'll set you up. And then she got this other guy, and I, I went back in the afternoon. And I said, what is going on? She goes, we can't get anyone to work. We can't get anyone to come in to work right now. And now we already know all these containers are here because no, there's no one to drive in the trucks to get these things where they're going. And there's probably more to it than that, but for sure, that's just the basic math. This stuff needs to go from point A to point B, and you need a truck to do it. And all these people are making money, not working. And they're being given money on the goodwill of everything our forefathers did to not work, to keep people from going to work that need to work for good things. And what does this have to do with this text? I'll tell you what it has to do is we've all been given a second chance. We've all been given a second chance. And you know, I said to the lady, I said, thank you for coming to work. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. And then the guy I met with this afternoon, I'd never seen him at our branch before. And he said, sorry that no one was here earlier when you're here. And thanks for coming out. I'm like, dude, thank you. He goes, yeah, we just can't, no, one, no one's coming to work. We can't get people to come to work. They just, we, and we know, like, when we tried, we had eight kids go to Rubio's here. They wouldn't serve them two months ago because they couldn't make that much food. And they said, go somewhere else. On a, on a, on a Friday night. Like, how is Rubio's not going to serve six, eight people on a Friday night? It's just, this is where we're at right now. And that's not the point of my because we already know, you already know this, right? Like, it's not getting better, it's getting worse this way. But I told the guy that helped me, he's like, dude, I'm so glad you're here. You're on it. And you're going to be rewarded for it. Like, I appreciate you being here to help me do what we need to do. And I had a great conversation with him about Russia and going to Russia and what life is like in Russia. And it was great. We're all coming out of something, and we're not really out of it because it's a, it's a different world. But it's a second chance. We're in a second chance right now. Church is not the same as it ever was. Your business isn't the same. Your family's not the same. Nothing's the same. But it's a second chance. So build a city. Do something positive, constructive, and beneficial to your walk with the Lord, with the people you love, your society, your community, and the human race with the second chance. Don't live in a bunker in fear waiting for the Antichrist to give you a piece of bread for a day's wage that you don't even earn. Everything's a second chance right now. And I'm all about let's build cities. Let's be like Abraham and multiply our flocks. We came through something really strange and we're still in it and it's never going to be the same. And it's a second chance. So build a city. You dodge the bullet, take advantage of it. You almost died, but you didn't, take advantage of it. You lost everything, but you didn't, take advantage of it. You lost everything, but you still have a life, 
John Wooden, the great basketball coach for UCLA, his dad lost the farm during the Great Depression in Indiana. And he learned so much about who he was as a man and his influence on humanity. Probably the greatest coach of all time was watching his dad lose everything but have a second chance on life and rebuild, rebuild the family and the family wealth and all that stuff. Great women and great men come back from dodging bullets and they go forward and they build another city. That's what they do. They make it happen. So whatever second chances God has given me or you in ministry, with family, your walk, your character, build a city. Take advantage of it. Because you could have just, this story could just end like he told him how to get in the city, and him and his wife and kids got out of Dodge, but it doesn't end there. They got out of Dodge, they got the last plane out of Kabul, and they made something of their life in the United States. That's what I'm talking about. They, had, they were given a, a very special chance, and they made something very special out of it. That's what they did. It's called the city of Lewis to this day, which means the city they built lasted for at least 350 years, because this is the beginning of the book of Judges, around 1450 B.C., and when Judges is written around 1000 B.C., the city of Luz still exists. So instead of perishing in a city with everybody else, he got a second chance on life to the benefit of his family, built another city that was still existing four centuries later. I like that. We read on, verse 27. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shenan and its village, or Tanakh and its village, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land, and it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, so the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nahalo, so the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Ahalab, Achizib, Helab, Ephik, or Rehab. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell on Mount Heris in Ajalon and in Shalabim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundaries of the Amorites were from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. So this is the incomplete conquest of the land. These tribes, Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, Dan, they're all in reverse. They're all playing for a tie. They've, they've, they've led up and it's going to have a far-reaching effect. And we saw a lot of that already in Joshua. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilead, Gilgal, to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, that people lifted up their voices and wept. And then they called the name of that place Bochim, and place of weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So here again, you got this inner reflection where this is going back to when Joshua was there, but it's laying out the landscape of the book. So remember, we left off Joshua with them in incomplete and not finishing the stuff, and Joshua exhorting them to do it, and this gives us more insight. So here's the angel of the Lord, most commonly accepted by biblical scholars, angel of the Lord, in this sense being Jesus. And when you say, how is Jesus in the Old Testament? Because back in the Gospel of John, or in forward in the Gospel of John, when Jesus was going at it with the religious leaders, he took the title to himself as I am. And I am is the all-sufficient one, the title God gave Moses at the burning bush. When Moses says, who do I say sent me to deliver us, to deliver the people? You say, I am that I am sent you. So I am is that name that God gives himself as all-sufficient God of a trillion galaxies. And Jesus took that name to himself when dealing with the religious leaders. And they picked up stones to stone him because he claimed to be God of the burning bush, that he is I am, equal to the Father. 
So then we see, even when he went to the cross, why they put him on the cross? Because he claimed to be God, not because he's a criminal, but because he claimed to be God. We also know from John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So Jesus is the Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and no one has seen the Father at any given time, but the only begotten of the Father, the Son, he has revealed him to us. So we know in Jesus' earthly ministry, he is revealing God the Father to humanity in his earthly ministry. Thus, when we have Old Testament appearances of God being seen in appearance, which you do have, whether it's the command of the Lord's army that we saw with Joshua, and Joshua worships him, and Joshua worships the command of the Lord's army, and the command of the Lord's army accepts that worship, that's not going to be the Father, that's going to be the Son. It's not going to be an angel, because angels are not allowed to accept worship. So we have these, what we call theophanies, which is appearances of God in the Old Testament, or Christophanies, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament, and so the angel of the Lord, a couple times in the book of Judges, pops up as that title, the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is really, the word is messenger. You know, you, you get that with the book of Revelation, the seven angels, the seven messengers. It's a messenger from heaven. But here, it's not, a, it's not in a traditional angel because he says, I led you from Egypt and brought you here. So the angel of the Lord is saying he did for them what God did for them. He's saying, I did that for you. So this most likely is a Christophany. When we talk about Christ fulfilling the Old Testament, we say, hey, he fulfills the prophecies, and he's there in the theophanies, in appearances, and he's there in the typologies, like Abraham offering up Isaac as a type of what would happen. So we, we get typologies, prophecies, and theophanies, and this is a theophany. And it's a place of weeping, which is appropriate because Jesus is the man of sorrows, but his sorrows is for humanity and brokenness of humanity. Their sorrow is for bad decisions and the consequence of them. Now we read on in verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance in Timnath, Herez, in the mountain of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose out of them who did not know the Lord, nor the works which he had done for Israel. Verse 10 of chapter 2 is a real key verse for the entire book of Judges. I think it's one we all relate to, that another generation arises that doesn't know the Lord. And it can happen accidentally. It can happen deliberately. Obviously, here in the United States, it's been very absolute, demonic, and deliberate to see a generation arise that does not know the works of the Lord. They don't know the word of God. They, did, they, didn't, they don't know prayer in school. They don't know the Ten Commandments in school. They don't know right and wrong, morally, absolute truths, all that stuff. It's all happened in our timeline. And it's been very deliberate by the devil using evil men and the infiltration of our education system and our government by traitors and collaborators is really antichrist because in doing so, the people that have infiltrated our government and these collaborators for evil are atheistic people who reject the reign of Christ over his universe, reject the reign of Christ over human hearts and even the marketplace of thought to have self-determination to accept or reject Christ. So they're not just political collaborators of other worldviews contrary to our Constitution. They're actually antichrist, not because so much they're against the Constitution, but because they're against Christ. They're against the life of the innocent being protected. They're, they're against the dignity of life. They're liars, they're deceivers, and they're evil, and they're wicked because they're demonic. And our battle isn't against these men. It's against the principalities and powers behind these men and these women who are deliberately trying to destroy our nation. And again, it's not even really about the Constitution, though it kind of is, but ultimately it's about there arose a generation that didn't know the Lord. You see, I have the book, Public Prayer, for the Dallas School District, 1937. And people would mock that now. And anything you ever see with Christian religion in any sort of film or movie is usually super negative from the world. It's, it's to humiliate Christians. It's to rewrite history where we're the bad people. We're the people who build hospitals. We're the people who care. We're the people who take, take care of the lowest people in life and elevate them. We're the people that brought us public education when it was good public education. We built the Ivy League schools, not secular humanist. Christians did for the furthering of the gospel. But these people rewrite history to make it evil. They call evil good and good evil. And again, that shouldn't surprise us. We're in the midst of it in our generation. 
it, it happens in every generation, some way or another. We just happen to be in the greatest country in human history where it's happening before our eyes. It's hard to watch. So we see that there arose a generation after the previous generation was gathered to their father, another generation who did not know the Lord nor the works we had done for Israel. So now people can't think with common sense, let alone critical thinking. But it's deliberate. It's absolute. But it's antichrist. Because the real issue is not constitutionalism. It's Christ and the gospel and the Ten Commandments and absolute truth to guide a nation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. It doesn't say blessed is the nation whose God is the Constitution. Now, the Constitution is based upon that. But the Bible says blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation and sins are approached any people. So the more that a nation or local government or highest government is aligned with the truths of God's word, the person, the character of Christ, the better it is for the inhabitants of the city. For when the righteous reign in the city, it's good with the citizens. Proverbs. But when the evil reign, where can you go? Proverbs. It's the reality. So now we see in motion what's happening in the book of Judges, and this is why we're going to get a lot out of this book, because it's going to teach us the good things of how to handle things when you feel helpless. Because when I studied Russian church history quite a bit in the last couple of years, just such a helpless feeling for the Christians in Russia. On the back end of Nicholas, the czar, the last czar, and how they attacked the Bible-believing churches, and then even way worse when the Bolsheviks under Lenin came to power and how they attacked the churches. Such a helpless feeling. But I learned a lot reading the book Out of the Cauldron with Prokhanov and what he went through as a Russian leader and things that strengthen my faith and can strengthen our faith. Yes, it happens. Because you've got to go back to Russia, even with the Russian Revolution, know this. The Russian Orthodox Church still taught that Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God and that he was the Savior of the world. And when the Bolsheviks came to power, they tore down all these churches that had been there for, like, some cases, 800 years. They tried to erase all memory of God, and they, the neighbors would snitch on the other neighbors for having anything that had anything to do about God in their house, a shrine, a relic, or whatever. But in the end, the Bolsheviks came and went, and there's millions of people that confess Jesus in Russia right now, in the former Soviet Union. So we can't be moved. We just know it's a reality that it happens. It happens. People suppress the truth with governmental power. They suppress the good news because they're led by the devil. And that's what we're called to pray for our leaders. And we pray for the freedom of the gospel to be released. And even when it's not, people risk their lives to go into closed countries like Brother Andrew and many others to share the gospel with people who are perishing. Because there's no other name given among men by which you must be saved. So if another generation arises that doesn't know the work of the Lord, it's all the more reason we tell it to them and we show it to them. Amen? Okay, almost done. Here we go. Verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth. So Baal is the god of blood and war and violence, and Ashtoreth is the uh, goddesses for sexual morality. Blood and sex. There it is. Verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them to the hands of their plunderers who, who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so they could, not, they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. So they're impotent in battle. They, they had no power. They, they were, God wasn't with them. They were in sin. There was no way to bless them. And they went from there. Instead of being the head, they're the tail, as it said earlier in the Old Testament it would, when he was making the covenant with them. In verse 16, we read on. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judges. And for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They would not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I will no longer drive out 
before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk to them, in them, as their fathers kept them, or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. So that's a summary verse. So we close with this this key thought that sets up the whole book. They would fall into duress and cry out to the Lord. God would give them a judge, a leader to lead them and guide them and take them forward and bring deliverance, and he would bring reprieve. We're going to see this beginning next week. There would be reprieve, maybe 20 years, 40 years. Things would go good. Then the people would get comfortable again. Things would, they would turn their back on the Lord. Then bad things would happen, and God would have to raise up another deliverer. It's a cycle. It's a cycle of sin, deliverance, sin, deliverance, sin, deliverance, and that's what we're going to get. But I leave you with this thought that is very encouraging to us. In spite of all that was going on, God in his sovereignty had empathy and compassion on them. He, he, they were stubborn, but he was moved with pity. They were stubborn, but he was moved with pity. And however stubborn people around us might be against the Lord, God still has pity. For the Lord is long-suffering that people would not perish, but many would come to saving faith. That's why the delay it would seem to be with the Lord's return. Second Peter chapter 3 tells us that. He's not willing that any should perish. God is moved with empathy and pity toward the folly of humanity, and we can never forget that, no matter how stubborn people are in fighting the Lord. And we see that he gave them judges to guide them and lead them and to deliver them. So this is our final thought. I want to be like a judge, a good judge in the book of Judges, and so do you. You want to be that woman. You want to be that man. You want to be that person that has a spiritual life, a relationship with Christ, and that you bring deliverance to a bad situation. When you walk in the room, you are the deliverance. You are the truth. You are the light. You are the salt. You represent the deliverance of the Lord. You represent the wisdom of Deborah and the faith of Gideon. You represent that. Or even the power of Samson. You represent that. Or the legacy of Othniel. That's when I look at Judges, as we go through Judges, we want to frame it with faith because we should, because we're people of faith. And so, yeah, we know there's a generation that arose that doesn't know the Lord or walk with the Lord or care about the Lord. We get that. But our place in the midst of this generation is to be like Deborah, to be like Barak, to be like Gideon, to to be like uh, Samson's parents and have the angel of the Lord come visit them and give them a child. Like, that's who we want to be the solution, the truth the comfort, the hope, the vision, the courage, the example. That's who we want to be. So as we go through the book of Judges, we know a generation exists that doesn't walk with the Lord or know about the Lord. But we can be the judges. We can be that person that people look to in chaos and confusion that encourages the banker trying to do everything when there's nobody working anymore. We can be that person We can bring the light and the life of Christ into every equation. And that's who we want to be because we're the church. So it's not so much about how society wants to eradicate Christ from its influence. It's about us bringing Christ into the marketplace through love, humility, and service. And God's going to honor that. So that's us. People are looking for deliverance. They're not sure what they need deliverance from, but we have the answers because Jesus is the answer.